Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and you make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all, the families of the earth shall be blessed. And 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is El, I knew it, Elzider of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your, own, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring spring. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Thank you, Mike. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you, and you are a promise-keeping God. You are steadfast, and you are faithful. You are unchanging in your wisdom, in your power, in your holiness, in your righteousness. But Father, we confess that we are a promise-breaking people. Our hearts are quick to wander, we're quick to forget, we're quick to uh, go against our word. And Father, we need your healing and your protection and your, uh, the regeneration of your spirit to change our hearts and to change our desires that we may become more like Jesus in our thoughts, in words, in deeds. Father, we thank you for your promises. Your promises that were declared uh, before the foundations of the earth to call sons and daughters out of our, the curse of sin and to declare them uh, adopted children of the one true God. And though we are unfaithful, and though we wander, Father, you have sent Christ, the Good Shepherd, to gather uh, your children from all nations, every tribe and tongue and nation, to bring them to the Father, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, may you give us lips to praise you, hearts that love you, and voices to declare your goodness, your mercy, your compassion, and your love. In the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. As we continue in our sermon series, The Long-Awaited Savior, last week we looked at the first promise of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, the promise of the snake crusher, the promise of enmity that we can never be satisfied in the deceptions of this world that have been weaved in by the enemies of God who has come to kill and destroy. 
but the promise that one day an offspring of the woman would come, a snake crusher, if you will, to destroy the head of the snake and that to be able to defeat the enemies of God. And we know and we celebrate this Advent season, the snake crusher has come and will come once again, and his name is Jesus. But as we see there in the garden, things went from bad to worse. And the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis, you see the big picture of creation. You see, after they left the garden, uh, Cain and Abel were born, and Cain killed Abel, the first of many murders where the image bearers of God were snuffed out. You see that God flooded the earth, and as Genesis chapter 6, verse 11 said, the earth was corrupt and it was filled with violence. Then you see the Tower of Babel that the people uh, got together and they exacerbated the problem because rather than living for God's glory, they sought glory for their name and they said, let us build a tower that we will make a name for not God, the only one worthy of our praise and adoration. Let's make us a name for ourselves. Pride. I will not live for God's glory, for um, finding pleasure in God. I will live for my glory and my pleasure and for my kingdom. It was at the heart of Babel. And the curse of sin that poisoned the hearts of image bearers of, uh, uh, got into the point, it was so much so that in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it grieved the Father's heart. That the image bearers that he had created to be brought into the perfect fellowship of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, their love had turned to themselves, and they were destroying themselves. And God loved his creation and his people too much to stand idly by and watch them destroy himself. So, even though generations came and generations went and the heart of mankind was desperately wicked and poison had seeped into every fiber of mankind's being, and as we read through the text uh, up through the first 11 chapters, you begin to say, what about the promise? What about the the snake crusher? How is any of these wretched offspring going to be able to defeat the head of the serpent when they are so much entangled by the web uh, of of the serpent? They are overpowered continually by sin. What is going to happen? And the answer is this. God himself must act or mankind will never be rescued from sin. And that's ultimately what we celebrate in Advent season. God has acted, and he has come to save his people. Ocean Park, unless God initiates salvation, we are lost in our sins. How many times do we forget that, though? No matter how hard we try, no matter how smart we get, no matter how much we try to purify ourselves and be good, our very best thoughts and our very best deeds and our very best words are are tainted by the stain of sin that is seeped into the core of our being. Now, we're not as bad as we could be. 
thank God that his common grace has held us back from the extent of what our hearts are capable of. And as we read through scripture, scripture never whitewashes what the heart of man is capable of doing. Sometimes in Sunday school it does. Um, But when we read through scripture, we see what our hearts are capable of. Why? Because sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he has created. Sin um, does not do or be what he requires uh, us to be. Sin refuses to acknowledge God in his world. This is what Paul in Romans chapter 1 was talking about. This big picture. It says, since they image bearers of God, made in God's image, though they saw his, his uh, uh, attributes in creation and knew that God is God and they are not and they must live right with him, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, ignore him in the world he's created. God gave them up to the debased mind to do what ought not to be done. There are times when God will lift his hand of grace and say, If that's what you want, you're going to have it. And that's the judgment. Often as a nation and as a people, the things that we desire most ferociously, like Ahab desired the white whale to his own destruction, the very things that we think are going to save us and satisfy us are the very things that destroy us. How many times have we seen friends and maybe yourself, maybe your family members and, and loved ones have destroyed themselves? Because they wanted something that they could only find in satisfied in God himself. You see, their hearts were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceive, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. It never fails to um, surprise me about the new varieties of sin in our world. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's degree, degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but what? They give hearty approval to those who practice such things. Though brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, we're not as bad as we could be. We're not as righteous as we must be to be in fellowship with God. And we all languish with our first parents outside of the garden, outside of fellowship with God. And we have a longing that though we often suppress us, we have a longing for God himself. And all of us have a sinful heart. The same heart that they had in Genesis is the same heart that you and I have. Though each one of our hearts express that sin in different ways, your struggles are not my struggles, and my failings are not your failings, but we share that same heart that does not desire God, and we must be saved or we will die in our sins and grope in the darkness knowing this is not how it's supposed to be, that we have this insatiable hunger, this insatiable thirst that we long for, that we cannot satisfy, and it is only God who can satisfy us. We need to be saved, and we cannot save ourselves. 
And this is where Genesis 12 brings us. If salvation is going to come, it must begin in the heart of our gracious and compassionate, loving God. The promise of the snake crusher must come. The promise of the nation blesser as we look today. So here's what we see uh, this morning. We, we have two points, the promise given and the promise accomplished. We begin that this promise was given in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that Mark, or Mike read for us. We're not in Mark anymore. Um, his name is Mike. If God was to crush the head of the serpent and accomplish salvation for his people, he would have to take the initiative. He would have to accomplish the mission himself. Salvation depends on God alone. Amen? The true and living sovereign God came to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, now, it's a very brief, it feels like the transmission is dropping. Uh, you have this genealogy in verse, uh, chapter 11, the descendants of Abraham, or descendants of Noah, and that all of a sudden, this, the spotlight, it's almost as if you have this long, panned-out picture of the nations, and then all of a sudden, the director is moving his camera to zoom in on this place in the Middle East called Ur. And you see this man uh, surrounded by flocks and, and he's worshiping. And it doesn't say explicitly in scripture, but the people in his region were known for worshiping the moon. And Abr Abram would have been, like his people, worshiping the moon. And the almighty sovereign God of the universe comes to Abram and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Abram, I doesn't record it, but it was, I could imagine it was unexpected, it was unsolicited, and an unconditional promise when the Lord said in verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So that you, Abram, will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him, he who dishonors you, I will curse. And then here is my focus, and in you all the families of the earth shall be saved. The rescue plan of God is being initiated through a man who didn't know the one true God. But God came to him in his grace and mercy and revealed himself and made a promise promise that began with uh, a threefold promise, a nation, a, a land, and a blessing. The first thing was that God promised Abraham, um, and, and it says Abram means father of many, and at this point, Abram is 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, is, is about 65 at the time. She's probably two and a half decades past the ability to have children, and then it comes to him and says, I will make you a father of many nations. And Abram may have looked at heaven and says, did you do your research? I have no children and I'm 75. And see the irony of this, as you begin to read it, God gives him this promise. He gives him this promise and then does not fulfill this promise for another 25 years. There was a woman in China just recently, a couple of weeks, probably a month ago, so she was about 65 years old and she had a child. 
Uh, obviously, there was in vitro and all that stuff that was involved in there. Um, but Abram says, I am old. My wife is barren. It says it in the end of 11. But God waited 25 years to make sure that Abram knows that everything he has is because of God and God alone. 90 years old, uh, Sarah brings forth a son. And he made this promise that they will have as many descendants as the sands of the seashore and the stars in the heaven. And he brings out, and Mike read for us in Genesis 15, and he brought Abraham outside and, and without the pollution of the light and without the pollution of our world, I imagine the stars danced. And it was breathtaking as he looked and he saw the Milky Way in front of him in all of its glory and majesty. And the Lord said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And we know it is impossible. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. The man who was nearly a quarter of a century old and the woman who was well past childbearing years, that God would bless them and bring a nation from them. Such a promise was impossible to believe. But I imagine, it, it, and, and it talks about, it stirred Abraham to laugh. It was so just ridiculous. He also pr promised him a land. He said, from God, that it, your descendants would go to a land and that stretched from Egypt to the great river Euphrates, and the land would be a place where his descendants would dwell. They would belong. And these are incredible promises. Innumerable senses, a place they would dwell with incredible um, a, a provision. And it is in here, these verses, where the greatest promise is given to Abraham a blessing. Abram would have a great name that was blessed by God. The very thing that the towers, uh, builders at the Tower of Babel were working for, God would give Abraham a great name. And Abram did nothing to deserve it or initiate it. All because God chose to show Abraham grace and mercy and bless the nations through him. I like how the NIV puts it in uh, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you and curse you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's our promise. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Not promising Abraham that he would be the means to go bless the nations. It was rather that Abraham would be the conduit by which God would bring his blessings to the nations. That the blessings of God would flow through Abraham and his descendants. Uh, the promise of God was always to reach the nations. Not just the Jewish people, not God's chosen people. Um, going to the Gentiles was never plan B. It was always plan A. And it started with Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Yet the magnitude of this promise was simply not found in the acclamation of Abraham's blessings, but the immense magnitude of this second great messianic promise. Um, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. God initiated a salvation plan, a redemption plan, 
to be able to crush the head of the servant and rescue his people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation through the lineage and the offspring of Abraham. And see, the beauty of this is this plan does not depend upon Abram's strength, his knowledge, or his faithfulness. Because he went down to Egypt and he lied about things and then he was a scaredy cat and he started a a fight and it was not depending on God, but the promise didn't depend on him. The promise depended on the Lord's strength, the Lord's wisdom, and the Lord's faithfulness. God's rescue plan began began with Abraham not because Abraham was faithful, he was an idolater, worshiping the moon. God's uh, rescue plan started with Abraham because God was gracious and merciful upon him. And this was what was unbelievable and inconceivable and incredible that God should give him his favor. Notice if you go over to Genesis 15, verse 6. When God begins this plan of, reckon, uh, of re- redemption, declares it to Abraham on page 10, uh, Genesis 15, 6. And what was Abraham's response? Abraham believed God. He believed God, and notice, it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the heart of of the gospel. The gospel says God has done the work of salvation. We are the ones who trust his promises and rest in his work. Abraham received the promise of God and what did he do? He believed God. He believed God's promises that God would do what he said he would do. Abraham was justified by faith. Now children, do you recognize that word justified? Remember we learned about that Wednesday night? Justified means what? Remember? I clearly need to redo a review. We talked about the judge makes a declaration that you are righteous. You have done what is right, even though we know we have not. In the sight of God, we stand before him justified. In other words, Abraham was brought into peace with God, into a right relationship with God, because he believed God's promises. I like how Kevin DeYoung in our children's story puts it. He said, you might think that God wanted to bless Abraham because he was such a swell guy. You read many uh, children's storybooks. I remember one of the professors wrote, just kept opening books and said, Abraham was righteous. Abraham was righteous. God, verse 12, came to Abraham when he was worshiping false gods and made him righteous because Abram believed God. You might think God wanted to bless him, but Abraham didn't know God at all when he was called. Even after he got the call and all these promises, Abraham could still be a liar and a bit of a scaredy cat. Abram's life had a lot of ups and downs, but two things that were going for him, two things, God's promise to bless him and Abraham's belief in God's promise. That's all Abraham had, but the good thing is that's all he needed. God's purpose was to bless the world through the unconditional promise made to Abraham, a promise that would not be foiled by disobedience or distrust or disloyalty, a promise which did not rest on the fact that it was given to a good guy, but it was given by a good God. 
The promise didn't depend on giving to a good guy. It was a promise was dependent upon a good God who always keeps his promise. But you see, there's a promise. There was an obstacle to the promise, to the snake crusher, to the nation blessing. That promise is what? The curse of sin. It was, as we sang, the dark and gloomy night of sin. That was a problem. That was an obstacle. The, the blessings of God could flow, but they don't go to the nations because the nations are living outside of the garden, not in right relationship. They are not justified to God. They need to be brought back into the garden by the nation blesser, by the snake crusher, by the promised king, by the, by the uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, uh, prince of peace. They needed sin has to be dealt with. If God's promises was to be fulfilled, a solution to the cursed must be found. Because God is righteous. He is a just judge of the universe who hates sin and must deal with sin. How many times have we watched uh, on the news and we see someone that is guilty walk scot-free because of a technicality, because of a hung jury, because of ridiculousness. And we know justice is not being done. And the judge who sits on the bench is helpless because of the law, because of all whatever. God is not like that. God will deal with sin. But at the same time, God is merciful and gracious, so he has mercy on the sinner. So something has to happen because of this obstacle that stands in the way of the promise that is given, and that's exactly what God is about to do. The promise accomplished. Turn in, uh, to the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. I think I counted it's the ninth book of the New Testament. It is on page 973 of your pew Bible. Uh, if you don't have a pew Bible, you can look in the table of contents, find the New Testament, ninth book, Galatians, and, uh, and you can flip there to chapter 3. Anyone who has read through the pages of Scripture uh, discovers men and women of great faith and profound wisdom and fearless courage, uh, standing before lions, fighting giants, marching around enemy walls. Yet the more and the longer you read, you see these mighty heroes of the faith have feet of clay. They are tainted by the insidious stain of sin. Adam faltered. Noah was corrupted. Abraham lied. Isaac was a weakling. Jacob was deceitful. Jacob's sons were ruthless and they sold their brother into slavery. David abused Bathsheba and abused his power and then murdered her husband. Solomon was foolish. Isaiah despaired of life. Nineteen kings ruled over the northern kingdom and every single one of them did what was wicked and evil in the sights of the Lord. I have listened to many of you lament as you read through the prophets in your Bible reading that you can't get to the New Testament fast enough. Why? Because the heaviness of sin is overwhelming. You read it in the pages of Scripture and then you watch it on the internet and on the television and you see sin has corrupted our world. 
Time and time again, we realize that the best and the brightest, the most faithful of men and women, need themselves to be redeemed. If salvation is to be accomplished, it must be accomplished by God himself. And this is why this morning we rang, we sang the song, O Come, Come, Emmanuel. Uh, it's almost a lament, it's almost a dirge. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. You can feel the angst, you can feel the weight. You can feel the desire to be rescued and the almost hopelessness as the songwriter and singers uh, uh, is on the precipice of hopelessness and despair and they cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. We cannot rescue ourselves. We must be rescued by you. This Brothers and sisters, is why Advent is so, such a time of rejoicing. God has accomplished what mankind has miserably failed to do. But it's not as simple as sending a little humble infant so tender and mild who sleeps in heavenly peace. The promise that the blessings would flow to the nations must destroy come in and destroy that obstacle, the curse of sin, or it will fail like everyone else. Like every king and every generation and every judge, it will fail. Notice Galatians chapter 3. I'll turn there myself. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and 12. <coughs> For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified, declared righteous, brought into peace with God before God by the law. For the righteous shall live, how? By faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Without going into a lot of background, Paul is telling this group of of, of believers to know that anyone who attempts to save themselves by the works that they do, Allah, keeping the law of God, are cursed because they could never possibly be, be righteous before God. And they every uh, time possibly be able to, everyone seeking to save themselves by their own performance will be cursed. And that person will live in constant anxiety and insecurity and doubt, wondering, have I done enough? Have I done what I need to do? I have seen so many Christians, rather than trusting what Jesus has completed and living is a loving response in response to Jesus saying, I have to do, and they have a long list of pharisaical things they have to do, and they are crushed under the weight of, of a doubt and uncertainty in everything they say and everything they think. They're weighed down by, have I done enough? Are there hidden sins I don't even know about? And they're crushed. 
It responds, some people in response to that are nervous and timid and despairing of everything because they never know where they stand before God. Is he just going to crush me under his thumb if he really knew? Some, on the opposite end, are prideful and they're boastful and they're arrogant because they think they're superior to everyone else. I have done this list. Either way, great doubt and weight of sin or pride, you will fall into utter despair because no one is able to be perfectly righteous towards God. If the standard is being able to jump to the moon, um, Carl Lewis can jump higher. Uh, I might be able to jump a little higher than some of you, but all of us fall desperately short of the righteousness of God. How can a person escape the curse of sin and experience the blessing that is promised to the nations when all, every one of us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? The answer is this. Trust the work of Jesus. It's not what you do. It's what Christ has done. It's not what you do. It's what Christ has done. Notice in verse 13 and 14 of Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming what? A curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of who? Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles, the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. When a person in ancient times, not just biblically, but all, all the time, when a person was executed, it was not by crucifixion, it was typically by stoning. And when that person was stoned, their body was taken and hung on a tree, often for days. And it was a way of saying, this person is cursed by God. Don't be like that person. Don't do what they have done. It was a symbol of divine rejection. And Paul, knowing the thinking in the heart of man and the work of Christ, in verse 13 he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse, this obstacle, this clog in the conduit of the blessings that started with Abraham and that are flow through the world. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse. During Advent season, we sing special songs. We probably could sing them all year long, but we save them up for this year. We say things like this, joy to the world, what? The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Uh, we sing, O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. These are songs of grandeur. These are songs of adoration. These are songs of majesty. The incarnation of God coming to live with man, of the Christ child, took place. Why? Not that we could give presents to one another and hang wreaths and have uh, pretty ribbons and pretty bows and all those things and make sure on Black Friday we got in the black out of the red. Jesus was born that he would be cursed to be spat upon to hang naked as he died slowly for hours while his mother watched, while the religious people sneered and said, see, we got you. 
And the people around were apathetic as he died, humiliated, naked. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Dead, dying, accursed, smitten, afflicted. The reason Christians are able to enjoy the promised blessing of God is because Christ became a curse. Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, all of us who are in Christ, for our sake, he, God, the Father, made him, Christ, the Son, to be sin, a curse who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might what? Become the righteousness of God. Be declared righteous. Be brought into right relationship. Be brought back into the fellowship of the garden. The sweetness of intimacy with God and man and all who have trusted in the promises of God from Abraham to the fine when Christ returns. Jesus came to earth to take a curse, not his curse, our curse. To take his rejection, not a rejection he deserved, but we deserved. To pay a debt that we accrued. Ocean Park, there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves from the curse that has plagued humanity from that fateful day in the garden. Only God could act to save us, and that's exactly what he did. The eternal Son of God left the glories and the honor and the perfect fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he came to earth. He wrote himself into the story, if you will. He was held in the arms of the very creatures he created to redeem us from the curse, to drink the bitterness of the cup, to take that curse that we may enjoy the eternal blessings of God, which he promised to bring to the nations. Christmas is not glorious without the bitterness of Good Friday. Christmas is not glorious without the bitterness of Good Friday. But the gospel warns us, that this sin-atoning, curse-bearing blessings of Christ is not a universal thing that all men and women in, enjoy. It is only those who are united to Christ by faith. Notice verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, in Christ, united to him under the shadow of the cross, the shelter, the, 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 the um, mighty um, fortress of the cross of Christ, the blessings that were promised to Abraham might what? Might come to the Gentiles, the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. It was in Christ that God acted for salvation so that we might be in Christ and receive it. John Stott, the wonderful theologian who just a few years ago went to be with the Lord, wrote this. We are not saved by a distant Christ, who died hundreds of years ago and lived millions of miles away, but by an ex existential Christ, who, having died and risen again, is now our contemporary. In other words, he is alive. 
And as a result, we can be in him personally and vitally united to him today. Faith is holding, laying hold of Christ and believing God's promises that Jesus became a curse for you to redeem you from that weight of sin that you could not pay, that you may receive the blessings of knowing God and being with God that you did not deserve. And knowing the promise that when he comes... Because we celebrate the first advent, a second advent is coming. When he comes, he will crush the head of, serp, of the serpent that was promised in the garden. The blessings of the nations will, be, will flow through, through Abraham's descendant, through Christ, uh, and that the, uh, all the nations will be in, in fellowship with God. Turn in the back of your Bible the rest of the story, if you will, to Revelation chapter 5. It's on page 1030 of your pew Bible. It's the very last book in the Bible. First, second John, or first, second Peter, first, second, third John, Jude, Revelation. Go to chapter five. I want to read it to you. I want you to listen. Listen in light of the blessings that will flow through Abraham to all the nations because of Christ, who became a curse for us to redeem us from that and to bring us back into the garden, into a better garden, into a better fellowship with the nations. <coughs> Then I saw on the right hand of him who seated on the throne a scroll written, without, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This is a scroll that is the redemptive plan of God. Without being able to unlatch this scroll and open it up, the redemptive plan cannot happen. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and to break its seals and really in reality enact this rescue plan of God? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look on it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found. Because um, worthy to open the scroll to look upon it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It is Christ who is able to enact this rescue plan of God to bring his people back into fellowship of the garden. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. And it's not just a regular lamb. Notice this important, beautiful detail. As though it had been slain. With seven horns, which, which is a, a picture of, all, of, of perfect power, and with seven eyes of perfect wisdom, which the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from his right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saint. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. For you were cursed. For you, the Father, watched in silence as he, the Son eternally bore the wrath of, the, of the, our sin. And by your blood, you ransomed people from God. And here's the promise of Genesis chapter 3 from every tribe 
and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, number myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I held and I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Ocean Park, we are like Abraham. God has given us a promise. On the cross, Jesus took my shame and my guilt and my punishment for all who are united to Christ by faith. We sing the song, Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin, and by his death I live again. We don't add to the gospel. We don't supplement the gospel. We don't perfect the gospel. We don't improve the gospel. We are called to trust the gospel. Trust the promises of God. You either believe in the promises of, of, of the gospel, that when Jesus died, he took my curse, and, and, uh, and then he gave me his righteousness by faith, or you don't. And then note, if you do believe God's promise, everything in your life changes, like Gil talked about. When you see what Christ has done, and the promises of God in the gospel, it spurs forth a love that, is, that cannot be satisfied by the things of the world. It changes what you love, it changes what you do, it changes what you enjoy, it changes what you say, it changes what you think, it changes what you desire. Everything changes in the light of God's loving promise of Calvary. Ocean Park, if this is true, that your greatest enemy has been defeated, and that you can enjoy the greatest blessing of knowing God, then everything, uh, every blessing, every good thing that comes down can be enjoyed in the light of his promises. Every day that you live, you live for the glory of God that didn't give you what you deserve, but he gave you Christ. He gave you himself. We are um, saved by faith alone. Ocean Park, the question you must answer today is, do you believe the promise of the gospel? Do you believe that tr Christ took your curse to give you the blessing of peace with God? Do you believe that the curse of sin is your greatest enemy, your greatest problem, and there's absolutely nothing that you can do to free you from that, that curse? Do you believe that Jesus died in your place and gives you his righteousness, that Jesus was cursed and crushed so that you could be loved and embraced by the Father and have a place in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all who have believed in the promises of God? Do you believe that because of the infinite value of Jesus, are you willing to follow Christ wherever he sends you, do whatever he calls you to do, and do everything for his glory and not your own? May it be said of every one of you this morning, and he or she believed the Lord, and it was counted to them as righteousness.